Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And I promise to try and slow down this time. It can be found on page uh, 1,233 of your pew Bibles uh, or on the screen behind me. Colossians chapter 1, starting from verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. Thank you, uh, Michelle, for reading God's word to us this morning. It is, it is his precious word, and we pray this morning that the Spirit of God will help us to understand it, and more than that, also uh, apply it in our hearts and lives as well. So let's come uh, to our God in prayer again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living, it is active, it is dynamic. We ask, O oh Lord, that your Spirit will... Help us to understand this word and apply it in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this morning, who is Jesus Christ to you? How do we see him this morning? How about the world that we live in? How does the world view Jesus? Perhaps some of the answers could be that he was a great teacher. He was a good man. He was a moral man. He did good things. He was a compassionate man. And he lived a good life. Or perhaps for others it might mean absolutely nothing about Jesus Christ. And so as we live in a very postmodern society... In a world that is filled with pluralistic ideas, a world of syncretism as, as we see in this letter as well, it is so important, I believe, for us to have a clear clarity of who our Savior Jesus really is. 
And so this morning, we continue our study in the book of Colossians. And we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 23 as our passage. And I trust that as we work through this passage that we will today, this morning, behold the majesty, the splendor, and the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so this morning we come, I believe, to an incredible Christological passage of the person of Jesus Christ. It is one of those passages that speaks to us clearly of who Jesus really is. It's a rich passage. It's a fantastic passage. It's an encouraging passage. And it's an uplifting passage. And I trust this morning that our hearts will be filled by his spirit to behold the majesty of Christ. And so today, I trust that you keep your Bibles open uh, with me as we work through this passage together. And we're going to look at this text under three basic points. Jesus, the image of God. Jesus, the preeminent one. And Jesus, the reconciler. The image of God, the preeminent one, and the reconciler. Well, let's have a look at 15 to 17, please. Is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. Rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, Paul begins this passage, this section, with a clear combination of both a theological emphasis of who God is, and also a Christological statement of who Jesus is. We see this clearly in 15a. He is the image of the invisible God. So we sang this morning, immortal, invisible. Remember that hymn? What's the next words? God only wise, right? Well done, well done to you, friends. You see, And now we, we, we know that, uh, for example, what, well, what does it mean, the image of the invisible God? Now we know from Genesis chapter 127 that mankind bears the image of God. So what's the difference with Jesus? What's the difference? There's a massive difference, friends. He's, he is the image of God in a higher sense as we will see in this passage. The Bible tells us that God is a spirit and so we cannot see him. And as spirit, he doesn't have a body like we do. And as we look at this text here, we see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now that's the difference as well as we see between us being made in the image of God and Christ himself, who is the image of the invisible God. So we can't claim to be gods, as some cults would do. Imagine if we were to say, well, we are made in the image of God, and so we are also little gods. We are not. Absolutely not. The word here is very clear. So what does this mean? It says that he is the image of the invisible God. The Greek, the, the, the text here is unseen. It is invisible. That which cannot be seen. And so let me highlight a, a few thoughts about the invisibility of God as stated by the well-known theologian John Frame. 
I don't know whether any of our theological students uh, have read his uh, wonderful systematic theology. Anyone else? Right. Oh, you, there's one person here. <laughs> That's great. Okay. He's written, he's written a massive work, an incredible work, a theological systematic theology. And uh, he, he says this about the uh, invisibility of God. He says, God is essentially invisible. This means not that he can never be seen under any circumstances, but rather that as Lord, he sovereignly chooses when, where, and to whom to make himself visible. The second thing he says is, God has made himself visible in theophany and in the incarnate Christ, so that human beings may on occasion truly say that they have seen God. And then he goes on to say this, no one has ever seen God means that no one has ever seen God apart, this is important, apart from his voluntary theophanic incarnational revelation. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let me explain this. So a theophany, as we know, is a physical manifestation of God to human beings. He appeared to an angel, Genesis chapter 32, as a man in Genesis 18, and most of all, God appeared in theophany with the glory cloud. Remember that? Leading the people in the Exodus journey. And here we see, that's the theophanic uh, perspective that we have. And, and John Frame, writing further, he says this about Jesus. The incarnation of the Son of God in Jesus Christ is, of course, unique in human history. Jesus is a theophany, but much more. Only in Jesus did God become flesh permanently, being conceived in the body of a woman, experiencing a human infancy and growth, subject to the suffering of this life and to death itself. What a statement as well. God has done this. Only in Jesus did God become flesh permanently. And so God has revealed himself by theophany and incarnation, both highly visible means. And in a real sense, to see the theophany or the incarnate Christ is to see God. And so we see here in this passage that he is the image of the invisible God. And what we see here clearly is that Jesus is God himself. He is eternal. John chapter 1, which we read, the word became flesh. That's a tremendous statement of God doing a profound act in the power, in the sovereignty of God, that he sent his son to be born of a woman. The word became flesh. That is what we mean by incarnate. To be incarnate when the word became flesh. And this is God speaking in his son Jesus. So Jesus is not a lesser God, is he? Jesus is not just a moral teacher who lived a good life. He's not just another religious teacher, leader. He's not just another good man. Jesus is very God. The Nicene Creed, we often say that in our, uh, when we have Lord's Supper. What does it say there? We believe in one God. Let's say it together. 
those verses. How's that? Let's do it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father. You see, so Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. Now, friends, you wouldn't believe this. When I was preparing this text last week, I was working through the Greek exegesis of this passage, and guess what happened? My doorbell rang. And I thought, that's rather strange. In the morning, no one usually comes to my place in the morning. Okay, so I go up to the door, and guess who is there at the door while I'm working on this very passage? Two ladies. Two ladies. And you guess who they are? JWs. They couldn't have come at the perfect timing. <laughs> I was like, man, this is going to be a great morning. Fantastic. Anyway, we got talking. And then they said, oh, we want to talk to you about Jesus. I said, okay. I didn't want to get too long into the conversation, and later I regretted it, actually. And uh, I said, look, you, uh, so you don't believe that Jesus is God? They said, no. He was actually created, etc., etc." I said, look, I believe that the Bible tells us that Jesus is very God. Do you want me to bring the Greek text and we can work it through this morning? <laughs> they said, no. So it was all right. I said, look, we are Christians. We believe in Jesus as our God, that he is very God. He is the Savior. So thank you for, for whatever you're doing. That's it. And later on, I thought in the afternoon, I thought I should have engaged a bit more. <laughs> but I was too busy with this passage to spend time with the JWs. So as we know, the JWs, they don't believe that Jesus is, the timing is impeccable, isn't it? What was God trying to tell me? Chris, stop the sermon and go and preach the gospel to these guys. Maybe next time. Eh? Maybe they won't come. So. <laughs> you see the JWs. To them, Jesus is not God in the flesh. Now, this is not what the Bible says. So when you get Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your house, and they're often around this time, of Good Friday and Easter, they'll be there. You should know, my dear friends, we should know what we believe and who Jesus really is. So that when they speak, start talking to you about who Jesus is, that you're able to bring from the scriptures that this Jesus that we worship is not somebody that has been created, but is God himself. And so we see that here clearly. He's the image, the invisible God. And so it's a manifestation of God. And so if we are to ask the question, what is God like? I think the answer would be something like this. It must be something like this. He is like Jesus. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, which was our first reading, uh, we have this text there for us, John chapter 1, 18. Jesus says, No one has, seen, has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And then we have this incredible discussion in, in John chapter 14, uh, Jesus and Philip. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? 
And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What a statement there is, friends, in that. You see, so he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Have a look at your text there, verse 15. For by him all things were created. And so we, we see three things here about uh, the, the, the person of Jesus or the work of Jesus as well. Uh, firstly, that he is the firstborn of all creation. Secondly, he is the creator. And thirdly, he is the sustainer of all things. Now, when you say firstborn, what comes up in your mind when you think about this word firstborn? Have you ever looked at that word and thought, what does this mean? This may sound as if Jesus was the first one created. Have you ever kind of thought that? Was he the first one actually created, the firstborn? We might kind of think that way, right? But the Jehovah's Witnesses take it that Jesus is not God and hence he was created. This is not the case at all. In the Old Testament, the firstborn was the inheritor. In the Old Testament, he was the one with status in the family. And in some cultures, the firstborn male has a status even today. And as the firstborn, he was given honor. And so is Jesus. The highest honor belongs to Jesus as the firstborn. He is supreme over all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. By him, all things are sustained, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He made everything. And notice his work is, is the creator. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. What a statement. All things. And to make the point further about the person of Jesus, Paul now goes on to speak of Jesus as the creator. In the original text, there are two words. It means all things. Everything is the creator of all things. Like the Father is the creator. It is for him. He owns it. He is the Lord of creation. What a blessing. And this same God has created you and me in his image. Has he not? Look at ourselves, we are all different individuals, right? Different features, different colors. Some of us easily tan in the sun, others don't. Some of us have a natural tan, like myself. We are all different people from all over. And God has created us. And this Jesus is the creator, as we see here in the text. He's the Lord of creation. And he's the sustainer of all things. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What a statement, friends. He holds it all together. He's the author of providence. Imagine if he did not hold all things together. What would happen to this world? Have you thought about that? If Jesus does not hold all things together, <laughs> that'd be chaos. You won't know whether it's morning or night, right? We won't know that. It'd be chaos. 
We take it for granted, don't we? We take it for granted. Now, have you noticed that the mornings have come in like at 7.30, it's still a little bit dark now? It's getting a bit darker? I have noticed this. Can't take the dog early morning for a walk anymore because it's a little bit too dark. And if, if we take it for granted that we get up in the morning and the sun's going to rise and everything's going to be all right and the, the, the day is going to be as normal. How is this possible? You see, because he holds it all together. And this is what we may call, and theologians may, may, uh, have coined a phrase, which is metaphysical preservation. That is to keep the universe in existence. That he holds everything together in a metaphysical preservation by Jesus. And so we can take nothing for granted. Everything is held together. And what a blessing that is. This amazing universe is held together in a metaphysical preservation by Jesus. And this same Jesus holds your life in his hands. Do you believe that? Do you? And then we see, you see, without him, nothing would exist. And without him, nothing will be able to continue to exist. And then we keep moving on, friends, verse 18. And he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. This is Jesus. He's the preeminent one, right? He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, he might be preeminent. You see, have you noticed the words, friends, there, that he's the head of the body of the church? Who is the head of this church? Who? Jesus is the head of this church, correct? Let's get that 100% clear, right? Christ is the head of this church. Christ is the head of his church across the world. He's the one who controls his church through his word and through his spirit. And he exercises authority over the church through the word of God and through the structures that we have in place. Christ is the head of his church. It is his body, and we won't have time to go into all of that in 1 Corinthians, where Paul speaks about the body with its various parts and, and serving. And Christ holds the body together. And you and I, my dear friends, are part of the body of Christ with Jesus as our head. And so we live and we serve each other and we serve our God and we help each other in the Christian journey and we walk together as a church family knowing that Christ is the head. And as the head of his church, he knows what he's doing. The body cannot function without the head, right? Just like our own bodies. We cannot function without the head. Imagine what is going on in our heads. I mean, right now, you're supposed to be focusing on this, right? So no other imaginations. But think about it. The number of signals that's going through your mind right now. You're probably thinking, Chris, when are you stopping? You're probably thinking, well, what time am I going to go home? You're probably thinking, Chris, it's enough. No, you're not thinking that. You see, lots of things are going on in our brain. And without this head, the body will not function. The number of signals, everything that's going through, it's, it's traffic all the way, isn't it? And the head, the church cannot function without the head. And so as a congregation here at St. Stephen's, my prayer for you is that the Lord of this church, Christ himself, will be there. He was the head of this church 
will lead and guide this congregation, this church, every step of the way. He's the head. See, notice here, friends, in verse 18, he's the firstborn from the dead. What, what, what's that about? <laughs> firstborn, firstborn, okay? It's, it is the message of Easter, isn't it? It's talking about the resurrection. You see, Jesus is preeminent over death. Jesus is preeminent over the grave. Jesus is preeminent over hell. Matthew Henry explains in his commentary on today's passage that Christ has given us evidence of our resurrection from the dead. You see, and we are confident that we have a share in the full blessings of the age to come because the true Lamb of God died in our place and rose from the dead, and in Him we have eternal life. And what a blessing that is. Do you know this Jesus as the living Savior in your life? Are you trusting in Him to know that this living Savior holds you by the hand and leads you every day? It's always a beautiful thing to see a mother or a father holding a little child's hand. I think that's magnificent, isn't it? Don't you do that? I mean, we are past that stage now. We can't hold the hands of our children anymore. They'll be like, oh, man, what are you doing? When they were small, I always loved holding their hands and walking with them and playing with them and carrying them upside down and doing funny things on my head. And, you, know, you can't do those things anymore. I can't even carry my son, Sean. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Wouldn't work. But you hold, you see, the, I always look at that. It reminds me of something. It's like our Savior. He holds our hands through faith because He is the living Savior. And we put our hands in His hands because He is safe. So, verse 19. So you see, without the resurrection of Jesus, we are without hope in this world. Because verse, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And I won't uh, focus on that too much because the subject of fullness comes up in chapter 2. You see, this word fullness is a word that the false teachers in Colossae used, used a lot. They talked about the fullness that believers could attain if they did some mystical rituals, right? some kind of philosophical beliefs. The Gnostics were present. And now Paul uses this word to make the point that it is in Christ that there is this fullness. That you don't have to look somewhere else other than Christ for this fullness. You look in Christ for the fullness in your life. Friends, this morning remember that our identity is in Christ. To be full, to experience the fullness of Christ is to know this Jesus. And to know his full grace upon your life. To know that your life is secure in him. Your identity is in him. You are filled with Christ. We don't need anything else. To make you safe and sound and secure. The fullness of Christ does that. What a blessing. So, we see here in verse, and clearly in chapter 2, for in him, Paul says, all the fullness of de deity dwells in bodily form. There the word fullness is stressing that Christ is a fullness of divinity. He is fully divine. And so in Christ you are satisfied, Paul says. Don't look further. Are you tempted sometimes to look at the new fads in this world? <laughs> the new beliefs that are coming out from time to time? And to say, well, I'm a Christian, but hmm, hmm. My friends, look at what they are believing. When the church is under attack, is it tempting to look elsewhere? 
When you're going through a crisis in your life, is it tempting to look somewhere for fullness? Come to the Savior. The very time we need him. So that you'll experience the fullness of Christ in your life. And then, thirdly, we see Jesus the Reconciler, 20 to 23. Have a look at your passage there for you. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by this blood, by, by the blood of his cross. I mean, this is a, a text, a sermon there in itself. You see, the word reconciliation is to bring together. The Bible says that Jesus brings us back to God. And when Jesus died on the cross, the effect of his death is not only that we get saved, but it's more than that. This certainly is the case when we repent of our sin and trust in him, we are indeed saved, but there is something more than that here in this passage, friends. Have a look, please, with me. Verse 20. Notice the words in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Again, this, these two combinations of words, all things. The Greek scholars here, you can look at that text and you will see what I'm saying, right? All things. The effects of his death on the cross is cosmological. Yes, indeed, we are saved. But it has cosmic dimensions to it. Everything is affected and touched by the work of Jesus making peace by his blood. And we see then that it has cosmic implications. That through him... To reconcile to himself all things by his blood. And you can read of these cosmic implications, for example, in the book of Revelation. Verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Notice what has happened here. God has done a thing in their lives. Before you become a Christian, before you became a Christian, you were alienated from God. All right? Hostile to God and doing things that were not pleasing to God. Yeah? That's the state of humanity without Jesus. But now look at verse 22 and 23. The Lord has done a work in the lives of the Colossians and indeed in the lives of all Christians. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order, this is tremendous here friends, in order to present you three things there. Anyone? Verse 22. To present you holy, alright? Present you blameless and Above, my, my ESV translation gives, above, reproach. <laughs> Three things that we were without Christ, alienated from God, hostile to God, doing our evil thing. Three things now that we are in Christ, and that is made holy, blameless, above reproach. What a tremendous transformation has taken place. Holy. You see, we are cleansed from sin and so set apart for him in this world. Three things that Christ has done, what we were alienated, hostile, doing our sinful things, now in Christ we are holy, made blameless, without blemish. Yes, we are sinners, but in his sight we are already made righteous. And above reproach, he means that there is absolutely nothing 
that anybody could find in our character which was less than perfection in Christ. And so Paul says that what you get when you reconcile with God through Christ because that is what God is working towards and one day he will present us to himself beautiful, holy, blameless and irreproachable. That's the bride. That's the church. How beautiful is the work of Jesus in the life of his people. So friends, this morning, if for example you are putting yourself down, if for example you feel that your sins are not being forgiven, if for example you are looking at your life and you think this is a miserable life, I do not deserve God's grace to me. Well, come to this Savior and your standing will change and your status will change. That's the blessing. Verse 23. So if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see here in verse 23, he calls the church to continue in Christ. In the next chapter, Paul will deal with the false teaching at the church that would undermine the truth of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's admonition to the Colossian church and his encouragement to us this morning in the word of God is that we would continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, and not shifting from hope of the gospel which we've heard. Can we be stable by Christ? This morning, by his grace, and Paul says, this is the gospel that's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which he became a minister. So, dear friends, as we bring this message to a close this morning, be stable, be steadfast, don't be fooled by whatever you hear about Jesus, but remain true to the gospel that you heard. Don't shift He's the image of the invisible God, for there is no other. He's the preeminent one who upholds the universe that he has made. He's the preeminent one who has reconciled us to God through his death on the cross as our Savior. He's the preeminent one by whom we have peace with God. He's the preeminent one who is the head over the church. He is the preeminent one who has conquered the grave by his death and resurrection. And a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me conclude by, I was reading a, a brief testimony of a person by the name, probably you, would, you know, C.T. Studd. Anyone heard of C.T. Studd? Any cricketing fans here, you heard of C.T. Studd? He was a cricketer who played for England. In fact, he made his debut on the 28th of August, 1882, when he played against Australia. And he played for England in the 1882 match, which Australia won, which was, by the way, the origins of the Ashes. All cricket fans, you know about the Ashes, right? C.T. Studd became a Christian, and he became a missionary in China, in India, in Africa. And C.T. Studd continues to be best remembered for the poem he wrote 
And this is what he said. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. So this morning, how are you living your life for this Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ to you personally? How do you and I see him this morning? Is Jesus preeminent in our lives? If he is, how am I living? How are you living for him today? How are my decisions in life shaped by him? And I want to ask you this question. And I ask myself as well. Is Jesus, is Jesus precious to us? Is he precious to you? Is he precious to me? Friends, Jesus is the all-sufficient, supreme, and preeminent one. And God has exalted him to the highest place. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. What a Savior. What an awesome Savior Jesus is. May our hearts be filled with the majesty and the splendor and the beauty of our precious Savior this morning. Amen. We're going to bring our service to